Hello movie viewers and movie lovers. This is Tim Williams, the host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. I just want to take a quick minute before today's episode to let you know that uh, we had a little recording mishap <laughs> on this episode. And for some reason, in about 20 minutes in, the microphone has some kind of short in it where it distorts the audio for about 10 minutes. Um, you can still hear us and understand what we're saying, but it is a little, uh, it's different than everything else. I'll just put it that way. So, uh, we could not fix this in post-production and I didn't want to take it out of the episode because it still has some good information and, you know, still part of the, the full experience. So just going to give you a heads up if you can sit through it or if you just want to skip it. Uh, but it only lasts about 10, between 10 and 12 minutes. Uh, and it comes about 20 minutes into the episode. So Enjoy. Thanks for listening. We'll never get it out now. So certain are you. Always with you, what cannot be done. Do you nothing that I say? Master, moving stones around is one thing. This is totally different. No, no different. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do. Or do not. There is no try. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers, my name is Tim Williams and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. It's hard to imagine that in 1980, when audiences first crowded into theaters to watch the sequel to George Lucas's unexpected blockbuster movie Star Wars, they would be the first ever to see such iconic characters as Jedi Master Yoda, smuggler-turned-businessman Lando Calrissian, and Mandalorian-turned-bounty-hunter Boba Fett. Fans would leave the theaters with three long years to wait for the next installment of the franchise, which was plenty of time to ponder whether or not that Darth Vader twist was the truth or a lie, and wonder if Han Solo would ever be freed from his carbonite prison. Four decades later, the questions we were left with have long been answered, but there's still an enduring appeal to the middle chapter of the original trilogy. In fact, many fans still consider Episode Five as their favorite film in the entire Star Wars franchise. So grab your lightsabers, check, make sure the Millennium Falcon's hyperdrive motivator hasn't been damaged, and then prepare to use the Force as Chris McMinchin and I discuss The Empire Strikes Back on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. So welcome back, Chris, to the podcast. Glad to have you uh, on this one. For those of you that don't know, Chris is, as well as I, a big Star Wars fan, so 
We've had many discussions about Star Wars films and, of course, The Mandalorian that was on Disney Plus this last year. Now all of our talk is about WandaVision, but that's for a different podcast. But uh, but glad to have you, Chris. How you doing? Doing good. Glad to be here. Um, I would count myself as one of those um, in the you know series of the nine. Mm-hmm. It's certainly my favorite movie. I, I you know I'm on the record with you already as Rogue One being my ultimate favorite. Right. <laughs> but right. for for different reasons that outside the nine though. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really have have always long admired and adored Empire Strikes. Back. Cool. All right. So when did you see Empire Strikes Back for the very first time? When- were you, I, are you old enough to have seen it in the theater? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw it in the theater. Um, I know it was within the first few weeks of release, for sure. Okay. Um, you know, I wasn't one of those camp-out overnighters, you know, but but I certainly saw it in the theater. Um, it, the first one, obviously, Star Wars was such a spectacle mm. and so different. And I think that when you found out, hey, there's another one coming out, that kind of revved up interest. Even back then, you know, that a, a blockbuster on that level, um, they came much fewer and far between back yeah. in the oh, day yeah. of this. Show, Definitely. Right? So, uh, and, and when these big things happened, it was a tentpole kind of event. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely saw it in the theater. Cool, yeah. I, I want to say I saw it in the theater, even though I don't really have the memory of seeing it uh, in 1980. I would have, well, the summer of 1980, I wouldn't have, I, I would just be five years old, so probably hard to remember. But I, the memory that I have is that I saw this one first, and then I think they re released Star Wars in the theater like a year or two after. And so I, I remember like being excited that Star Wars was coming back, and then I could see that one, and maybe, you know, I guess it makes more sense. So. Uh, I did see them both in the theater, but I saw them out of order. But I remember seeing the original Star Wars many, many times on uh, H, you know, back then at, at HBO. And so my sister tells a story of they would play the original Star Wars on HBO so much that she would come home from school and I'd be sitting in front of the TV and would be saying the lines with the characters. I had seen, I had memorized all the dialogues. So I knew every line. And I was like, I don't think that's true with every line. Maybe like a certain segment, because I don't think I had the patience to sit through all of it. Even back then, I probably watched it in bits and pieces. But uh, definitely uh, one of those films that's emblazoned in my memory from as a, from as childhood. Of course, I had Star Wars toys. I was real big into all the, the Mattel toys and the action figures and uh, all that fun stuff. But were you big into the toys and stuff as well? Yeah, I was. And, and one of the things I can remember very distinctly is uh, I was trying to... Uh, be figure out what to be for you know a kid at Halloween one oh, yeah, year, yeah. and I of course like every you know person's dream was to be Luke Skywalker at the time. <laughs> so I, I got a cloak and wrapped it around me, you know, and some oh, yeah, old yeah. tan pants, you know, mm-hmm. and boots. Oh, yeah. And uh, and my dad. The funny part was my dad, who was a theater director for many 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 years in high school. So he was very creative and and did all those kinds of things with props and such real well. And so he found an old, really strong flashlight and Hell put yeah. a long, like, tube, just a clear tube on it. Oh, And that's... just duct taped it together so that when you went out at night and you turned the flashlight on, it looked yeah. like the little tube was glowing. There, so it, yeah. A homemade uh, lightsaber, yeah. my very first one. There you go, kids. Your next DIY uh, Star Wars project. That's actually, <laughs> that's actually a very ingenious idea. I remember... And I, I, you know, once again, whether it was a dream or a real memory from being that far, that long ago, but I remember there being some little parody thing that I'd seen on like TV 
and they were trying to duplicate that and all they did was they just had like a lot of fog and smoke and then just a regular flashlight so you kind of saw the beam but of course it wasn't narrow enough but i remember even the kid going like that's not right you know that's not the real thing so as far as toys go, I remember very distinctly having uh, owning an X-Wing. And yes. the cool thing about it was there was a button on the top or the bottom. I can't remember exactly, yeah. but you would hit the button and the X-Wings would pop yeah. open. It would go from a straight wing to an yeah. X-Wing. I had the same thing, and if memory serves me correctly, the R2-D2 unit on the back is what you press down. Oh, yeah, like yeah, it would yeah. stick out and press it down, right, and, yeah. a, and the wings would expand. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that I had the land speeder from the original yeah. Star Wars. I think mm-hmm. that was the first... That's one of the first toys I remember having, and of course I had the you know like you said the the tan uh, Luke Skywalker, yeah, um, and then I did have the I think I had the X wing fighter. Of course I always wanted the Millennium Falcon, but it was way too expensive. Yeah, I actually one of the first things you know here's this is memory time, kids for for all you younger youngsters out there. Back in our day, we had yard sales, <laughs> right? And like so, I remember uh, one of my friends had one that he was selling for like. I don't know, 10 bucks at the time, which was, as a kid, that's still a lot of money. Sure. And so uh, we were having a yard sale, and so I went through all of my old toys that I was not playing with, and I was going to sell enough stuff to have $10 to go buy it. And I remember I actually buy, bought it from him, but it was missing. There was a plate that went over the back half of the Millennium Falcon where you had the where the uh, little game table was and, you know, kind of the parts of the ship that you see in the movie. But that piece was missing, and there were a couple of small pieces that were broken, but... I didn't care. It was a Millennium Falcon. I was mm-hmm. just excited to have it, have it all together. So, That's cool. uh, but yeah, I had tons of action figures and, um, yep. So. And of course, I think for the modern audience, um, Legos has really become the yeah. new oh, yeah, collector's yeah. items. Mm-hmm. You, you build all these things up now. Oh yeah, yeah. And, but the like the Death Star, there's a complete Death Star mm-hmm. you can build. The, the Millennium Falcon, of course, is probably A plus number yeah. one top of the pyramid item. Yeah. But uh, there's some cool stuff out there even now. So. Oh yeah, yeah quintessential item yeah definitely awesome. so all right so when was the last time you saw this before we watching it for the broadcast for the podcast my uh, my daughter my oldest daughter cadence mm-hmm. is really a big fan of, of you know science fiction genre and as you know, she's my buddy in all the marvel stuff mm-hmm. she's my buddy in all of the you know star wars things and she has really grown up in the in the generation of ray Oh, Ray, yeah. Ray Skywalker, right? Yeah. So, so she um, has that as her mindset of these most recent movies. Mm-hmm. So it's been fun for me to have a sit down with her from time <laughs> to time when she's been growing up and say, "Well, yeah. this is how it all started." You know, even though I wish I could blot the whole Jar Jar Binks thing out of the <laughs> out of it for her, I can't really do that. Right. Uh, so, but she and I have sat down and watched these movies within the last uh, four years, but it's probably been about four years ago gotcha. before this most recent. Yeah, probably every couple of years I want to go back and watch the trilogy. It's hard now because there's so many more of them now. So now you want to go back and I kind of want to go back and watch episode one, two, and three, and then you know, try to watch them in the chronological order, I guess. And of course, there's all these different orders you can watch them. And so the last time I started it, uh, I didn't actually finish, but I was going to do adding in the Clone Wars and Rebels and all the cartoon, you know, all those different pieces as well. It's but usually if if I want to watch one of the original trilogies, this is typically the one that I want to watch first. Like it's, I mean, I always want to watch the original Star Wars, but I feel like it's like the preamble to the Empire Strikes Back, like the one that I really want to watch. And I tend to always want to watch it in the winter time, which I think is funny. And I guess because the opening being in Hoth, all you know, the cold, it just mm-hmm. it makes me think of winter, even though it came out in in May. So. Um, so it's probably been a couple of years since I've seen, I can't remember specifically how long it's been, but I, I, I have a, what's funny is I have a, a DVD copy of 
the first six when and back when the uh, the trilogy the the, the uh, prequel trilogy was finished. Uh, but I bought it from eBay way back when uh, everything you could find before Amazon kids. There was a thing called eBay. So I went on eBay and it was actually like uh, it was an import. It came from like Taiwan or Korea or somewhere. So I got it. So it came in like totally different kind of packaging. I hate mm-hmm. to say it's a bootleg, but I didn't know. You know, I bought it from eBay. I didn't know what I was getting. But it. Uh, but the case had all six movies, uh, deep, you know, original DVDs. But they're all in like all the writing is in English and it has a different foreign language. But even when I go to watch it, I have to have my subtitles button ready because it doesn't show up the English subtitles when the, when it's alien, you know, the normal, normal stuff, which this one doesn't have any of that. So I'd used that so many times to watch it. So I think this is the first time to actually sit down and watch it with uh, Disney+. Plus. Now they're all on there. So that was kind of fun to actually not have to worry about <laughs> pulling out the DVDs to watch it. I just put it up on Disney+, Plus and watched it. So that was fun. So. Well, I'm uh, unfortunately... I'm a little older than you, and I actually can do one better because I have I had VHS oh, I, yeah. versions of yeah. those original three in yeah. one box. Yes, and you may know what I'm talking about. There's, oh yeah, there's yeah. a nice box with, mm-hmm. with all the characters wrapped around the outside, and mm-hmm. each one of the movies in the single box. I, I treasured that thing when I got it as a gift. It was a Christmas gift yeah. to me for my parents a long time. ago. Oh yeah, uh, uh, Ty- yeah. I think Tyra bought me the when I, I, shortly after we were married. I think the original this I want to I can't remember if this was the trilogy this had to have been the the new trilogy when they started to add, when when Lucas started to tinker with it mm-hmm. but it was a three you know three VHS set and I think it was a Darth Vader was kind of like the cover yep. and so she bought me that for Christmas and I was so excited like after everything was over I was like okay I'm sitting I'm watching I'm starting from the beginning I'm watching all of them and so Maybe that was DVD because at that point DVDs were pretty big. But I yeah, did I have. I don't think I could play the VHS yeah. ones now. I don't think I yeah. to play them. I think on, I think I had the VHS ones at some point, mm-hmm. but I didn't have them very long. I think by the time I got the VHS ones, DVD was starting to come was starting to come out, and so everybody was getting rid of their VHS stuff. And now it's like, man, I wish I still had those because mm-hmm. to what you know, one thing we'll talk about is you know they've been tinkered with so much now you can't even go back and find the originals. I know there's. Some copies you can find online that the people have put together, but the quality's not as good. Hopefully one day, I don't know if, if that's one that George Lucas has in his will, like, you will not release the original until I'm dead and gone. Uh, if that's if we have to wait for, you know, I don't speak any will, ill will towards George Lucas, and right. may he live a long and prosperous life, even though it's a Star Trek reference, but you get what I'm saying. If that's what's going to happen, then hopefully we'll get to see the original, you know, again, the original originals. Uh, and as they were originally theatrical release, so George is never going to die. He's going in carbonite freeze. I think that's it. La- <laughs> yeah. I think it's the last will or something. Yeah, well, if if money keeps you alive, he'll be alive for a long time because he's got plenty of money. So, all right, well, let's talk a little bit about the story origin and pre-production. Uh, this is a very lengthy. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Story. Well, a lot of this I did not know until doing the research for it, so it's pretty interesting. I will try not to bore you too much with this, but I think it's still pretty pretty interesting. So, of course, jump in. 
with anything that jumps out at you, Chris, as we go through this. So, Star Wars was released in May of 1977, and as we said, it was an unexpected box office success and quickly became a pop culture phenomenon. George Lucas, who did not expect the success, stopped doing publicity after a while because it became too overwhelming, and he actually flew to Hawaii with friend Steven Spielberg to begin conceptualizing their next blockbuster franchise, Indiana Jones. Another favorite of mine. The success of Star Wars and its licensing opportunities meant that a sequel was inevitable. Sequels that, amazingly, thinking about this now is kind of weird. Sequels were generally not well regarded at that time, and Lucas was not ready to commit. So I think we talked about this on one of our previous episodes that in the 80s, sequels were using not very, did not using make as much money as the original. Right. And usually were not as good as the original, I think. Before this, the only sequel that people knew about that was better than the original was The Godfather Part Two, And so uh, this was one of the first real sequels that, A, did better financially and people regard as a, a superior to the original. So, so Luke, Lucas thinks of the production of the first film as a four-year horrific seat-of-the-pants experience, one that he didn't want to experience again. However, the film did not fully represent what he had originally envisioned, and he knew that a sequel would allow him to finish the story. Additionally, Lucas had already established the Star Wars universe, so he figured a sequel would provide an opportunity to introduce more ideas and adventures. So he hired Alan Dean Foster, the ghostwriter of the Star Wars novelization, to write the sequel novel entitled Splinter of the Mind's Eye, so it could be adapted as a low-budget film if Star Wars was a box office failure. But by August 1977, Star Wars was still the number one film in theaters, motivating Lucas to continue the saga. So before production on the then-titled Star Wars Chapter 2 could begin, Lucas had to sort out various problems that had arisen. His special effects company, Industrial Light and Magic, which we now know as ILM, ILM, no longer had any employees because many of them had left to form Apogee and work on Battlestar Galactica. Galactica became a thorn in Lucas's side as the project bore a strong resemblance to Star Wars to the point that production illustrator Ralph McQuarrie called it a ripoff. Lucas hired some of the Galactica crew back but had to replace others, most notably John Dykstra, with whom he had a hard time working on Star Wars. Lucas had almost fired Dykstra during the production of the first film but did not because Dykstra had close friends on the crew, so Lucas also chose not to hire them back as well. One of Lucas's new hires was Brian Johnson, who had worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968 and actually turned down an opportunity to work on the original Star Wars. Lucas also had to build his studio, Lucasfilm, with, which similarly had few employees. So he had a lot against him from the get-go of trying to, I mean, I can't imagine. And also, you know, to have, like you said, I didn't realize that about Battlestar Galactica, but yeah. being in such a similar format... I can understand why it was a thorn in his side. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I watched that show, too, but I had no idea. I can see the similarities, certainly. I see it more now. I mean, that wasn't... I wasn't a big Battlestar Galactic fan. I remember it being on TV, Mm -hmm. and I remember seeing it. Like, I have memories of it being on TV and watching it, but I was never a big fan of that. Maybe because I was such a big Star Wars fan, it just felt like a cheap (laughs) (laughs) ripoff. Yeah, well, the Battlestar Galactica ships that they ran... Those little um, ships kind of look like an X-wing if you think about it yeah. without the wings on it. Yeah, it's kind of that, and you know the the big ships kind of look like the Death Stars and the Rebel Fleet. You know, uh, yeah. So I can see some similarities there. I didn't find it in this research, but I, I want to say that I had read somewhere years ago that a lot of the designs for Battlestar Galactica were things that had gotten thrown out from the original Star Wars. Oh. So they were original things they were they were going to put in. So, of course, him looking to do the sequel, mm-hmm. he was probably pulling that stuff back out and saying, we couldn't use it in this one, let's use it in The Empire Strikes Back. But then now that it's already been, you know, 
made it for Battlestar, you kind of go back to the to the drawing, you know, the drawing table or whatever yeah. to start over. So interesting. Distributor Twentieth Century Fox had tried to sell Star Wars to other studios because it feared it would lose money on the production because it had gone so far over budget. But following the film's success by September 1977, it was eager to make a deal with Lucas on the sequel. Unlike the prolonged negotiations of Star Wars, which took years, Lucas was able to strike a deal with Fox rather swiftly, partially because he planned to finance the sequel himself with $33 million from loans and the previous film's earnings. Lucas hoped to become independent from the Hollywood film industry and win against the principles of many Hollywood producers who believe in never investing one's own money. Similar to how he set up the Star Wars Corporation for the first film, Lucas created a subsidiary, the Chapter 2 Company, to help minimize the financial risks. By the end of September, the contract had been signed, the negative cost of the sequel was set at $8 million, and Lucas would finally receive final cut privilege. Lucasfilm was guaranteed 77.5% of the profits of the film, grossed over $100 million, which I'm sure that sounds like, oh, that's easy, but back then $100 million was a lot. That was a ton. That was a lot to make. Mm -hmm. Under the contract by July 1978, Lucasfilm subsidiary Black Falcon Limited would gain control of licensing, marketing, and merchandise, and the profit split would be 80% for Lucasfilm and 20% for Fox. Once again, he made a lot of money. (laughs) Merchandising was huge Huge, back then. The contract made it clear that Fox would have no creative control over the film, set a January 1979 start date for filming, and a May 1st, 1980 release date. So, yeah, and we won't even get into, and if you want to watch something, there's a great uh, little docu-series on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us. And I think the very first episode is all about Mattel and the Star Wars action figures. It's fascinating and about, once again, how smart George Lucas was to to get the licensing and that the toys and stuff were being made before the movie even came out. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's really cool. So definitely check that out if you haven't seen it. Um, you know, not really related to this, but sure. in the Star Wars universe, it's definitely worth checking out, especially if you were a collector of those things mm-hmm. as a kid. So. All right, so now fully in control of the Star Wars Enterprise, Lucas chose not to direct the sequel because of his other production roles, including overseeing ILM and handling the financing. Lucas offered the role of director to Irvin Kirshner, one of his former professors at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Kirshner was known for smaller, character-driven films, but had more recently directed the true-life drama Raid on Antibi in 1977 and the thriller Eyes of Laura Mars in 1978. I haven't seen either of those films. Kirshner initially turned Lucas down, citing his belief that a sequel would never meet the quality or originality of Star Wars. But he called his agent, who immediately demanded that he take the job. <laughs> In November 1977, Lucas hired science fiction author Leigh Brackett, or Lee Brackett to write the screenplay. Lucas had written the original Star Wars only out of necessity, which had been challenging since he had to create the world. Since the Star Wars universe had been established, he chose to collaborate with Brackett and give her ideas for the script. Lucas began outlining the film around August 1977, introducing ideas such as the Emperor and the notion that Luke Skywalker Skywalker had a long-lost sister. So, lots of iterations of the story early on. I don't know if you know any of this stuff already. Lee Brackett's first draft, I thought this was fascinating. Lee Brackett's first draft of the screenplay contained the revelation of Luke's sister, her existence disclosed by the ghost of Anakin Skywalker. Referred to as Nelith Skywalker, Anakin explains that it was he, not Obi-Wan, who separated the twins at birth to protect them from Darth Vader, and that Nelith also underwent Jedi training in another part of the galaxy so she could join forces with Luke to defeat the Sith. This concept was dropped in the second draft of the screenplay, 
along with the appearance of Anakin Skywalker in a place with the scene of Obi-Wan and Yoda discussing how they must find another Jedi apprentice in anticipation of Luke's failure. This too changed in later drafts, resulting in the more ambiguous scene in the final version where Yoda assures Obi-Wan that it's another. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, as I watched it back this time, yeah. I was thinking to myself, well, and, and he said, well, that boy's our only hope. And mm-hmm. then I thought, well, but he was there and knew about the separation right. of the twins, you know, so he knew that yeah. potentially one might have been a Jedi along with the other. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was a little bit strange. I'm like, hey, maybe somebody, you know, I, I, there's maybe just no way around some of those things, considering yeah. the order that everything's done. Right. I mean, what kind of world do you start a movie franchise on movie number four? I yeah. Mean, <laughs> what I mean, that no one ever does right. that. Right. And then years afterward we see one two and three right mm-hmm. so uh, but i guess some of those things are inevitable yeah that is true i mean thinking about it i mean going back and seeing the prequels it's obvious that obi-wan knows that he has a sister the question is though does he know that leia is the sister because with them being separated he really didn't know i i can't remember i gotta go back and watch the prequels now well he's, think, he's there and they're talking with the senator you know he's right. uh, and um I, I forgot his name but he's played by um Oh, the guy who played uh, uh, Jimmy Smith. Yes, Jimmy Smith. Yes, right. and he says, "My wife and I have always wanted a, a right. child." You know. So, but once again, even in Star Wars, and yeah. once again, I, you know, we're we're dip, digging deep into <laughs> Star Wars mythology, and I'm sure there's people that are much more versed in this <laughs> that will that will send me hate mail to say, "How do you not know this?" But that's okay. Send me an email either either way. I I I love to learn about my mistakes. All right. So, in the original Star Wars, Ben Kenobi, who we find out is Obi Wan Kenobi. He was still kind of dis- he was kind of a disoriented old man. So even as he comes back as a force ghost, you know, is he still is his memory still a little wanky, or does he now know things? So that that in my mind that can somewhat justify why he may have forgotten. Because you know, if you really go back and watch the original Star Wars, you know, Ben Kenobi Obi Wan is you know you can tell he's not all he's not all there. He's got some he's, you know he's he's been living as a hermit for so long, so that stuff is just kind of. He's kind of lost some of it, so. Yeah. But anyway, interesting stuff. So, yeah. moving on, Lucas also started considering ways to explain Mac- actor Mark Hamill's facial scars, which he suffered in a January 1977 automobile crash, within the context of the Star Wars universe. According to Hamill, Lucas told him that had Hamill died in the accident, he would have replaced Luke with a new character. Hard to imagine that happening, but I'm sure you got to do what you got to do. This led to the creation of the Wampa, a monster that dwelled on the planet Hoth that mauls Luke in the opening scenes of the film. Story conferences began on November 28, 1977, after Lucas hired Brackett. The two held story conferences until early December, and Brackett wrote their draft while McQuarrie began to paint uh, began to paint concept art. Lucas and Brackett discussed including the planet of the Wookiees, which had been considered for the first film, a new alien species, and two new characters, the Emperor and a gambler from Han Solo's past, which we saw didn't come to pass. Lucas also decided early on that he needed to introduce a new teacher for Luke since Obi-Wan had been killed off in the first film. Lucas's initial treatment, partly inspired by Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, contained a few key scenes that made the final film. Luke would study the Force under a Jedi Master, at that time named Mitch Yoda, which I thought was funny, before dueling Vader and ending up hanging from the bottom of a floating city, and the gambler would betray Han Solo to Vader. As Harrison Ford had not agreed to appear in a third film yet, the character of Han Solo was written out of the ending by having him go off to secure funding for the Rebellion. During his discussions with Brackett, Lucas conceived the title The Empire Strikes Back, and the idea 
to have it follow a structure similar to his film American Graffiti, which was having one main plot with three subplots running simultaneously. Lucas envisioned 60 scenes, a script around 100 pages, and a roughly two-hour runtime. The two laid out the film's basic plot, but also discussed expanding the character of Han, with Lucas suggesting that he met Chewbacca because he was raised by Wookiee and Luke's lost twin sister. So some of that made it, some of it didn't. So, so uh, Bracken and Lucas also came up with various ideas for subplots, including a love triangle. Lucas compared Han to Rhett Butler, Leia to Scarlett O'Hara, and Luke to Ashley Wilkes from Gone with the Wind. The reintroduction of Obi-Wan as a ghost, an Arctic world inspired by Flash Gordon, and the Thing from Another World, further development of the Force, and the new Jedi Master being an elderly, frog-like alien. Got that part right. Yep. They also conceived new aliens, planets, and the notion that the Emperor, not Darth Vader, was the true villain. Brackett's treatment, delivered on February 21st, 19, I'm sorry, 1978, was similar to the final film, but with Anakin Skywalker appearing as a ghost to instruct Luke and Vader as a separate character. Lucas was disappointed with Brackett's draft, but he was unable to discuss it with her because she died soon after. Very sad. Without Brackett, Lucas had to write the next draft himself. It was this draft where Lucas first made use of the episode numbering for the films. The Empire Strikes Back became episode two. He also used the plot twist that Darth Vader was Luke's father. According to Lucas, he found this draft enjoyable to write as opposed to the year-long struggles writing the first film and quickly wrote two more drafts, all in April of 1978. Lucas outlined a new black, a new backstory. Anakin Skywalker had been Ben Kenobi's brilliant student and had a child named Luke, but was swayed to the dark side by the Emperor, who was really a Sith Lord. Anakin battled Kenobi on the site of a volcano and was horribly wounded, but was resurrected as Darth Vader. This idea would later be realized 25 years later on Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, yep. which is by far the best of the... Meanwhile, Kenobi hid Luke on Tatooine while the Republic became the Empire, and Vader systematically hunted down the Jedi. With this new backstory in place, Lucas decided that the Empire Strikes Back would be the second film of two trilogies, designating it Episode 5 by the fifth draft. Five drafts. Lawrence Kasdan had just completed writing Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Lucas hired him to write the next drafts with input from director Irvin Kirshner. Kasdan, Kirshner, and producer Gary Kurtz saw the film as a more serious and adult film helped by the new, darker storyline and developed the series from the light adventure roots of the first film. Now, I will say this. I, I did not know that about the screenwriter who was involved in the Indiana Jones series. Yeah. But I'll tell you where you can see it, it even just sitting here hearing that for the first time, yeah. is the humorous elements in this Empire Strikes Back yes. that were nearly in New Hope. Yeah. Not, not nearly. Right. So, and especially surrounding the character, ironically enough, of Solo almost always. Yeah. He's the funny guy, you know, and, and I don't know, not not so funny, haha, but, but a lot of yeah. the things that he says get the laughs mm-hmm. in the in the movie. Oh yeah. Whereas he played the same kind of way, and it was written the same kind of way for him mm-hmm. in his, you know, Indiana Jones role too. Yeah. Uh, it might be in the notes, I don't remember, but I know they talked about Kirshner once again. Said because he was a more character-driven director, and of him having insights in, into the plot, that's that character-driven has always been George Lucas's weak spot. He's great with the effects. He's great with creating this world, this, you know, you know, these, creating the stories. But the characters, giving the characters enough kind of substance has been the, which was the weakness of the original trilogy. Why it pales in comparison to this one. Yeah. And why, I guess, Empire, once again, seems to be the most 
well-beloved of the of, of all the, the films. So. When you believe in the characters and you and they really seem realistic to yeah. you, that's when you invest in them as an audience, mm-hmm. right? It's so much easier to appreciate it. Oh, yeah. All right, well, let's jump into casting, which is, this will be really short because it's pretty much all the same people from the first one. All the main cast returns. Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. Walker. Harrison Ford as Han Solo. Carrie Fisher as Leah. David Prowse and James Earl Jones as Darth Vader. And Sir Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan. <laughs> During principal photography, it remained unclear if Sir Alec Guinness would return as Obi-Wan Kenobi as he had just had an eye operation at the time. He finally did agree and worked just one day on the movie, Wednesday, September 5th, 1979. He arrived at 8.30 a.m. and completed his scenes by 1 p.m., for which he was paid a quarter of a percentage point of the movie's gross, which turned out to be worth millions of dollars. It's not a bad payday. That's <laughs> <laughs> four hours work. I come in at 8, I'm done by 1, a couple million. Yeah, couple, you know, of course, you don't get that up front. you got to wait a couple years. Sure. But it all rolls in, but it's not bad. So. so there are only two real main new characters in this, and that's Lando Calrissian, played by Billy Dee Williams, and, of course, Yoda, voiced by Frank Oz. Uh, Billy Dee Williams had previously auditioned for the role of Han Solo in the original Star Wars. He actually finally landed the role of Solo's old pal, Lando Calrissian, three years later. I thought it was interesting. That was, And I think they were really trying to get him for... He was the first choice for Han in the, in the first movie. Um, I think uh, Lucas said he really envisioned uh, African-American character in that role, uh, but he couldn't commit. I can't remember what the reason was. He couldn't commit for the first film. So, But I love him as Lando. I mean, I think yes. that's much more... That, that's, that was a role really, I think, designed for him. It probably had him in mind when he was writing that role, too. George Lucas was so impressed by Frank Oz's performance as Yoda that he spent thousands of dollars on an advertising campaign to try to get him an Oscar nomination for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Lucas's campaign ultimately failed because it was felt that a puppeteer wasn't an actor. Lucas felt this wasn't fair to Oz. Oz honestly didn't care. Oz the Great. thought that was great. So, and you know, even watching, going back and watching it now, I am amazed at the puppetry of Yoda. And to really, I'm sure, especially as a kid, to totally be, you know, submerged in that story of not thinking of Yoda as a puppet, but as a, you know, a, a real creature. I think we lose some of that with the CGI in the later, you know, of course, puppets can do a lot of stuff that Yoda does in episode two and three, but I, I, I enjoy seeing him in that, in that form in this one, so. And his intro is, is just really brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Again. You know, the whole idea that he's not really Yoda, he's just yeah. kind of scoping him out <laughs> in the beginning, take you to him, I will, yeah. you know, and, and just playing it off. And we were sucked into all of them, mm-hmm. you know, we had no idea he was going to be one of the main franchise characters. Oh, yeah. Such an important, beloved figure. Is this little, you know, mm-hmm. this little troll guy. Yeah. <laughs> Who is this, yeah. you know? His introduction really is one of the best parts of the movie in the sense of, such good misdirection. Like, I mean, think about, you know, we've seen it so many times now, we know who that is, but to be in the theater scene for the first time, like, you know, why can't you just get to this Yoda guy? What is, you know, so just, once again, great writing, great, great execution of that. For you sure. know, you see that, the the vision on Hoth, and he says, mm-hmm. he's, where it bends there, and he says, you will, you know, train with Jedi Master Yoda, and you're thinking, Jedi Master, you know, mm-hmm. and then you see this little troll, yeah. you're like, hey, you know, right, as your first thought, mm-hmm. so, yeah, when, when you know, think, think once again, thinking about it now, knowing the full story, that the Jedi had pretty much died off. So right. you have these, you know, first he meets Obi Wan, who's 
old Yoda who's, you know, old. Yeah. Yoda's been old for a long time. Sure. He's 900 years old or whatever. Then you have Luke who's kind of fresh face. It just kind of adds a little bit more depth to that story of that, you know, he's he is kind of the next generation uh, and of, of Jedi, and so why his training was so important. So uh, that was cool. Uh, one little fact about Jason Wingreen was the uncredited voice of Boba Fett, a fact not confirmed until the year 2000. Wingreen had originally auditioned to voice Yoda. In a 2010 interview, Wingreen noted his lines were completed in only 10 minutes. However, Wingreen complained he never received residuals for the role, even though audio of his voice was used for talking Boba Fett toys and collectibles. As a result, Wingreen noted he has no love for George Lucas. Wow. <laughs> Sour grapes. Yeah, yeah Boba Fett. Huh? Of course, now that's all been, they've changed those, changed yeah. that voice to the, uh, uh, the Jan, you know, Django Fett uh, voice from, the, from that, so... Alright, so any favorite characters on this one that stand out to you? I mean, you know, got the, you got your original cast kind of hard to, the, for the new characters to really surpass them, so. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I really almost see this this piece as a Han Solo vehicle more so than a Luke vehicle. Yeah. You know, Luke's story is still, you know, is very, very much in the mm-hmm. core of it. And, you know, they're being injured to pull Luke to Cloud City and all those mm-hmm. things. But of the new ones, of certainly, I, I think I, I really like Lando a lot. I mm-hmm. mean, um, although he betrays, you know, them in the beginning, it, toward the end, you kind of see a side of him that, you know, well, this this thing with the Empire going south, you know, the deal gets worse and worse and worse, and he realizes the future is not with that. Yeah. Right? The future yeah. really needs to be with the Rebellion if you're going to try to survive. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, so I really kind of fell in love with the Lando character. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so let's talk about favorite scenes. Now, this is going to be kind of tough because we've seen this probably so many times. It's hard to have one that kind of jumps out at you. But maybe more, I say favorite scenes, maybe more iconic scenes. Like, is there any scene that you can remember when you first saw it that you were like, oh, my goodness, that's, like, amazing? Or just favorite scene, doesn't matter. Well, there are really two that come to mind for me. Okay. Um, the, The first one is the... Imperial Walkers. First time you see the Imperial yes, Walkers, yes. it's just you know that's the first time they appear, and then you see them you know pretty frequently in other movies, yeah. especially even in the the latter in yeah. um, seven, eight, nine. You know they're they're featured in yeah. those. I have like how they repurposed them in yeah. the newer movies. That's a nice nod that they weren't just snow. You know you see them in other settings, yeah. so that was cool. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, it, it's interesting because I'm a gamer guy, you know, to some extent. Mm-hmm. And in some of the games, you can portray the people in the Imperial Walkers, you know. Oh, yeah. And that's like a pretty cool thing to do. you got to, you know, earn the right to be, you know, <laughs> the gunner in one of those. And those, But they're really outstanding vehicles mm-hmm. of, of 
pain and <laughs> death and you know I mean they really are they're yeah. almost like in, at the time it looks like their version of you know imperial tanks yeah but it's it's uh it's really it, pretty cool so that stuff was and and you know you get the clue because you hear the big thuds mm-hmm. first before mm-hmm. you even see anything happening and then they say the announcement you know imperial walkers on the west ridge or whatever the mm-hmm. announcement is and then you start to see them you're like far away and then a little nearer you know and the harpoon business all that stuff i think is just iconic yeah. i love the i love the battle scenes part and the other one for me of course is the is for me at least is raising Yoda raising the X-wing yes. out of the water. Yeah. He's yeah. just so small, and it really for the first time gives you an idea of the enormity of the Force. Mm-hmm. And then he, you know, schools Luke about you know that's why you fail. Yeah, you know, because yeah. you you don't believe that's why you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, he says no different than moving that rock over. So. Oh yeah, yeah. But those two for me are the big. Yeah, uh, those rank pretty high for me. I mean, the the whole opening. Hoth scene is still one of my favorite favorite scenes. The only thing that's come close is in the new trilogy in uh, Last Jedi when they're on that almost similar, like the white but with the red streaks, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, outside the Re- Rebel base. Those two scenes, I, I feel like that was kind of an homage to that sequence, definitely mm-hmm. in my mind. So, uh, but yeah, but that whole sequence of, you know, him uh, wrapping the legs and them falling, and even going back and watching it now, the special effects, once again, still hold up really well to know mm-hmm. that that was stop-motion animation, uh, or stop-motion, you know, how they did that capture, yeah. and then superimposed. It's still, I mean, of course there's some spots, like, you can tell it's superimposed, but still, for 1980, oh, yeah. way, way above, uh, way ahead of its time. So, i say most iconic scenes for me is, like I said, the, the raising... The uh, the X wing is pretty big, with the most iconic scene for me, and of course it's probably the one the the biggest scene of them all. The big twist of no, I'm you know can't, I'm not gonna misquote it because the, the misquote is Luke, I'm your father. He right. never says Luke. He actually says no, I'm no, your father. Right, yeah. And uh, so that that whole sequence, I just remember being like, oh my goodness, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, at least from my lifetime, that was the very first quote unquote twist ending we ever saw, you know, right. something that wasn't a new thing at that point, but that's probably one of the most iconic, probably twist endings or like unexpected, you know, line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was cool that James Earl Jones even said that until he got the script for return of the Jedi, he wasn't sure if Darth Vader was telling the truth or not. Like he thought he was actually lying oh. to Luke to try gotcha. to gain it, you know, uh, being that evil to try to gain, uh, to gain him back. So, but there's a lot, and so that scene, of course, is like the biggest. My only one next to that is leading up to it, the the lightsaber scene around the carbonite oh, yeah, uh, in chamber. that kind of you know, the chamber mm-hmm. where it's kind of you know very, how they lit it very dark lit so the the lightsabers were very vivid and just that that scene is very kind of maybe it's iconic because at some point I had one of those the like, like postcard size that had the uh, like the ridges but it if you turned it it would change the the picture you know mm-hmm. I don't know if they call oh, right, it. I don't right. know the term for that is but I had one of those that was that like uh, one of the scenes where you hold it one way and their sabers are up but not together oh. and then you turn it and then you see them kind of move where the the two lightsabers cross and mm-hmm. I would just sit there all the time and just kind of flip that thing back and forth and I guess in my mind have that battle again in my in my brain but uh, and it's cool now like going back and looking at it and Especially now, all the things that they do, the Jedi's do with moving objects and jumping and all that kind of stuff, they really alluded to it there. And I don't think I realized realized it as much then as I do now. 
because I always had an issue with like, you know, I've had, I've, you know, we talk about Rogue One and this is a Rogue One podcast, but mm-hmm. I always had issue within the Rogue One with the battle scene when Vader comes out and he's doing super force, you know, kind of things. And it's like, wait, wait, this is before episode four. So why is he not fighting like that against Obi-Wan and not against Luke? And I kind of, we think we've had this discussion I sure. think a long time ago or yeah. several months ago about he had a relationship with Obi-Wan. He had her, it was, you know, these were not just mere soldiers he was fighting. So mm-hmm. he could have not used the fullness of the force in those battles. But anyway, that's that's my thought anyway. And it's interesting, too, that that's kind of how you distinguish where they are in their training. Yeah. That, you know, Luke is not able to hold up in that battle. Lightsaber to lightsaber, he yeah. does very well. Right. But when the force, you know, the objects start tumbling at him is where he starts to live. Yeah. The other thing, it's not a scene in it, but at the very end, there maybe one of the most iconic shots mm-hmm. in all of it, as far as the cinematography, is where they're on the Imperial, back on the Imperial ship, and yeah. Luke's been healed up, yeah. given his new hand, and he and Leia and the two droids are in the frame with the moon or yeah. whatever that oh, is yeah, in the yeah. background. Yeah. That's a... Like galaxy thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a huge, iconic moment. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and, and a, it's not really a scene, but that picture i always keep in my mind is kind mm-hmm. of a star wars picture so yeah uh that brought up a thought and, and we're going to briefly talk about this but and this, once again this is this is our age podcast so this so people that listen from this did you ever have the little uh listen and read like 45 records with like a little book do you remember those i don't think so okay i, I don't remember them at least yeah they there was little 45 records mm-hmm. Um, that would like tell the story, and there was a it would slide into the back sleeve of the book. It was almost like a about the size of the forty five, not very big, but it had pictures from the movie, and then it would kind of tell the story. Oh. But it would use sound bites from the movie, okay. and like a narration. So I had one for Empire Strikes Back. Oh, cool! So when you mentioned that shot at the end, I remember that being the final shot oh, in yeah. the back of that book, and then made me think I was like, oh, I'm, and I've still got them. We found my we. Going through my garage, my parents' garage a couple months ago, we found all of old albums and records, and I still have those forty fives. And so, but I, what I always liked was the Disney ones. There were there are all kinds of different ones, but Disney ones. Whenever you turn the page, it was Tinkerbell, like little Tinkerbell sound. For the uh, Star Wars ones, when you turn the page, it was R two D two. So <laughs> maybe that's why I have R two D two as my ringtone for my text messages because it brings me back my nostalgia as a kid. Yeah, that's so. cool. But yeah, so I'm just going to read a few quick uh, trivia things. Uh, most we'll have a lot more in the show notes, so make sure you go and read the show notes. But just for time, I'm not going to read all of these, but I'm going to pick maybe two out that I thought were really interesting. So uh, I did not know this before the podcast, but to preserve the dramatic opening of the Star Wars movies, George Lucas insisted on moving all the credits to the end of the movie. Now that's not that's pretty commonplace now, but back then right. that was a big no no. The Writers Guild and Directors Guild had begrudgingly allowed this on Star Wars A New Hope because the movie wasn't expected to be very successful. They resented the trend being continued in this movie. First, they tried to pull the movie from release, but were unsuccessful. Then they fined Lucas heavily and tried to find Erwin Kirshner, but Lucas paid all the fines himself, nearly $250,000. Lucas then bitterly dropped his membership in the Writers Guild, Directors Guild, and the Motion Picture Association of America, a move that has hindered his hiring choices on later movies. So I didn't realize that to have that crawl opening with no other credits right. and put all the credits at the end, like he was one of the first ones to really do that. 
So I think Marvel pretty much follows that now. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, very groundbreaking. Yeah, so uh, I thought that was I thought that was like super interesting. And then the Lucas would pay the fine because Kirshner's probably I didn't make that decision. That was that was uh, that was all Lucas. All right, well, here's an interesting fact: while Yoda is training Luke in the ways of the Force, he instructs him that it is never to be used for attack. But when Luke confronts Vader in the later scenes, he disobeys its advice, striking the first blow and proving he is not ready to be a Jedi. I didn't know that. And now I want to go back and watch that scene again. <laughs> it's right, like, yeah. You know, you read these kind of things like, I didn't pick up on that the first time. So anyway, but lots lots more trivia, uh, you know, behind the scenes stuff you can find in the show notes. So let's talk about box office and critical reception. So The Empire Strikes Back opened midweek on a Wednesday, that means, across 126 theaters prior to the three-day Memorial Day holiday weekend. Compared to Star Wars, had it compared to Star Wars, $1.5 million Memorial Day opening weekend, The Empire Strikes Back earned $4.9 million during the weekend, an average of $38,972 per theater. This figure increased a further $1.5 million during the holiday Monday to a total of $6.4 million, an average of $50,919 per theater, making it the number one film of the weekend ahead of counter-programmed debuting films. Only the other two movies that opened that weekend... The Gong Show movie, which I didn't even know that even existed, made $1.5 million. <laughs> and then the psychological horror The Shining from Stanley Kubrick only brought in $600,000. So the only two movies that went up against it. So When's a Gong Show movie podcast? That's fine. Um, <laughs> way, way down the line. I don't even know if you can even find it to watch yeah, it. So. so anyway, so that that's pretty... I mean, we knew it was a big hit. It's one of the biggest blockbusters, so no surprise that it was number one. So And residually, like you, oh, you, yeah. you know... It's, Still making money. You got it. So Rotten Tomatoes has it at 94% on the tomato meter with a 97 audience score. IMDb has an 8.7 out of 10 with an 82 on Metacritic. So which one do you... Are you Rotten Tomatoes A's all around, or are you more in the IMDb and the B range? I'm more in the Rotten Tomatoes line. From- yeah, I, once again, we, we said this. This is by far a better movie than Star Wars. Not that Star Wars was terrible, but no. it just it has such layers that the other, other that the others in the trilogy just didn't get. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes from you know Kirshner uh, being able to make it more character driven. I think there's some residual of that in Return of the Jedi, mm-hmm. and maybe that's. You still feel that from the, from Empire Strikes Back, but it's definitely a difference in the three when you watch them together, and especially now we won't talk about the most the most recent ones. Sure. But the prequels definitely suffered in that in that area. So, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think it's a it's a well worth a ninety ninety seven percent audience score. Yeah, um, it's pretty close to perfect uh, of a movie, mm-hmm. um, especially for nineteen eighty. So, all right, Chris, well, I appreciate appreciate you being on this episode, and uh, look forward to more in the future. Awesome, thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message to the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. If you do leave us a message, we may just use it in an upcoming mini-episode. Another way to reach us is through the new 80s Flick Flashback Podcast Facebook page, as well as our Movie Views Instagram. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts 
and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into this episode. That's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s flick flashback.